Hello, everybody. I'm J.D. Lopez, the host of Left Hand Right Brain. It's a free-flowing, wide-ranging conversation that I have with artists doing interesting and creative things here in Denver and beyond. We talk about their personal stories, break down their creative process, and what motivates them. Spoiler alert, it's mostly spite. We talk about all these things and more while kicking back, cracking wise, and always having a good time. You can find old episodes and everything you need to know at lefthandrightbrainpod.com. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. Start the show! You have all made it to the dance. Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 185. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. On this week's show, I pay some love to my sponsor. That's right, four degrees I got on the show. You've heard me talk about four degrees on this show since its inception. They've been my sponsor since episode one. And I've got one of their program managers, Liz Marasco, on the show. And Liz has a master's degree in linguistics. She is an expert in linguistics. She has dedicated her scholastic career to studying this and is now applying it in very interesting ways for four degrees. Now, before we go any further, a quick word of clarification here. Four Degrees did not pay me to do this episode. This is not like a sponsored post. Zach, in addition to being my sponsor and the leader of Four Degrees, is also my friend. And as he looked over his staff, he thought Liz would be a good match for my show. So he told me about her. I chatted with her briefly over the phone, uh, like a week or two before we recorded this episode. And Zach was absolutely right. Liz has fantastic insight into linguistics. So what does that mean? Language is really all we have. It's what separates us from the animals. It's how we communicate with each other. And there is so much layer and nuance and subtlety in terms of the way we communicate with each other that we need to unpack that. I have a master's degree in a very similar field of study. And so Liz and I hit it off pretty much immediately. And this is a great chat. One of the hooks of this show is the TED Talk that she did. I encourage you to check that out. It's on the John of All Trades website, J-O-N of all trades.us. There's a companion blog piece to each one of these episodes that I do with links to pertinent things from the episode. So go and check that out and and watch her TED Talk because it deals with how we say no. And when we give someone a dispreferred response, we help them handle that. And a lot of this is happening unconsciously, unintentionally. But we want to create connection with people. And so we help prepare them for news that they may not want to hear. And then she bridges that concept into talking about the Me Too movement. So we talk about the Me Too movement on this episode. We talk about police brutality. We talk about campaigns and we talk about sort of our trench warfare that is the way of politics these days. There's a lot here. And talking to Liz energized me and it's the type of show I love to do here. So I'm thrilled to bring this week's episode to you. You can find Liz at a number of places online. At the end of the episode, she'll point you to her Twitter account and to her own website, lizthelinguist.com. Again, you can find that on the companion blog piece, but you can also find her at Four Degrees. So check out Four Degrees. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. What can I say about Four Degrees that I haven't said already? Zach built this firm from the ground up eight years ago. We quit our jobs at the PR firm 
on the same day. I went and worked for two unfortunate months for an energy drink. Zach was building this and he has built it into something very successful and very special. That's why I'm proud to feature them. The work they're doing in campaigns is game changing. Now, whether that's a political campaign, issues-based campaign, or a candidate, or applying what they learn in those campaigns to your business, I would argue that they are doing unparalleled work in that space. If you have a business and you were doing something online, check out 4Degrees, at least have a conversation with them because I'll bet you that after that conversation, they can help you do whatever you're doing online better. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Okay. Let's get to this week's episode. Liz Morasco, program manager at Four Degrees. She is an expert in linguistics. This is episode 185, and it begins right now. Um, it was an English speaking show, so we just talked about politics and culture and American things. Oh, really? Weekly, yeah. Like in France, you talked about American yeah. politics and American culture? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize there was the interest in that uh, over there. Or... Well, I don't know the size of our audience. Okay. <laughs> I guess not very big. It was a 10 p.m. slot or 9 p.m. slot on Mondays, and we just... Okay talked about whatever we fancied. Okay. So it could be fairly niche, fairly narrow casted. Yeah. I think it was a lot of friends who are <laughs> tuning in <laughs> and it was on this like independent radio station, like uh, kind of this punk uh, setup. That's yeah. right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. It was cool though. Um, that's fantastic. Do you have like a background in radio? How'd you get hooked up with that? Just meeting people. Yeah. Yeah. They needed some English speakers that they thought had something vaguely interesting to say. <laughs> so I fit the bill. Okay. Yeah, I was recruited. So, I mean, it's just like kind of a fun thing to do. Yeah, what were you doing over there? I was teaching. Okay. Were you, like, teaching English or what? Yeah, English, linguistics. So I took a year off from my master's to go do it. Okay. To live in France. And so you're in the midst of getting your master's. Is I'm that done. Correct? Oh, you're done? Yes. Okay, you guys need to update Thank your God. website then. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when did you finish? May. Okay. Oh, so like just a couple of months ago. Yes. How long was the program? Two years, but right. I, I stretched it to three because oh, right. I took this year off. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, and so your degree is in linguistics. I have a master's degree in speech communication, which I always have to tell people is not speech pathology. Right. Um, I don't help people with yeah. lisps and things what like that. What is speech communication? So it's, uh, it's better understood as communication studies. Okay. So I studied media, rhetoric, argumentation. Uh, how do you build an argument? How do you analyze, you know, that kind of thing. It was really reading and writing heavy. Cool. I had an emphasis in media. Um, I wrote my thesis on punk rock and how you, how, and I used a theory from a guy named Grossberg and a guy named Charlande and talk about how each new text creates its own audience. Mm -hmm. It, uh, it doesn't speak to audiences are, that already exist. It calls audiences into being, and that sort of informed everything that I do in my career. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's sort of how I approach every communication project I do. So you have your master's in linguistics. What is your focus? My focus was sociocultural linguistics. Okay. So what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so it's less about the mathematical measurements of how we create sound okay. or um, syntax and things like that. The things that people think of when they think of linguistics. Actually, people generally think you're a polyglot, meaning you speak several languages, which <laughs> is unfortunately not true for me, but it is true for some. Do you have more than one? I only speak French. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that I mean, you're up on most Americans at that point, right? Yeah. 
I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. It's not very common to be multilingual here, but I did a lot of my work on conversation analysis. Okay. So actually my, it's not, it wasn't a thesis, but sort of my, um, the thing I focused on was actually police brutality. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I looked at the conversations that happened between police officers and a victim mm. uh, right before the situation escalates. And I did conversation analysis on that. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Uh, how was that received? Well, it was received very well. Yeah. Um, data collection was sort of limited to what I had from YouTube on, you know, from like lapel cams, oh, yeah, body, body cams, cams, things like that. Right. So uh, that technology is not great. So the data is not great, but it was well received. And it was pretty bleak collecting that data. I can imagine yeah. that had to be kind of a downer. Um, but so in terms of applicability, are you looking for this to potentially de-escalate situations like taking this analysis and saying, you know, word choice here, uh, the way you approach this, the way you talk to victims, could that potentially eliminate or at least minimize police brutality? I think it would be another resource for police officers to be aware of a situation that's escalating. Okay. So I don't know about minimization. I mean, like that would be amazing. That would be ideal, right? Yeah. But it really is just another tool. Okay. Yeah. This is Liz Marasco. She is program manager at four degrees. Four degrees is the sponsor of this show. They did not however pay me to do this episode. You were recommended to me by Zach and Zach and I have a long history and Given what you just told me and given your focus, your bent and our sort of similar approaches, I mean, I, I talk about how language calls audiences into being, uh, the theory I used was from Maurice Charland and he talked about, uh, it was a separatist movement in Quebec, which I don't care about. I have no interest in that, but it was a speech that called an audience into being that wanted to separate from the rest of Canada. Mm -hmm. So the intentional choices we use in language, uh, influence, actions. They influence the way things unfold. And so I watched your Ted talk and I'm going to mess up the title, but it's, uh, it's like how we say no matters. Yeah. And I found that absolutely fascinating. Uh, can you tell us a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen it, what the nature of that talk was? Sure. So as I said, I did, I focused on conversation analysis in my master's, which is totally a real field. I promise. <laughs> um, and one of the things that, one of the sort of fundamental ideas or principles in conversation analysis is we set people up to get the answer that we want. So we set people up to give us what we call a preferred response. Okay. Giving a dispreferred response or the opposite is actually very difficult. And we have a lot of resources to avoid doing that because we don't want to offend or threaten the face of the person that we're talking to because we're like, very motivated by looking good and being sort of happy with the person we're talking to. Right. We want everyone to feel good yeah. when, when we're talking to them. We really do. <laughs> and people can sort of argue that and whatnot, but normatively speaking, we are so invested in being affiliated with the person we're talking with. Right. If you're not a psychopath. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There are obviously like, you know, fringe cases and it's true. I mean, like there are, certain disabilities and things that compromise that. But generally speaking, all things sort of normal, we really, really want that. We all are invested in our image to people too. So with that said, giving someone an answer that they don't want is actually like genuinely very difficult. Yeah. And as we move through our lives during our day, 
we call on these resources to avoid doing that. And usually it's okay. So like if you um, make a request of me and I don't want to do it, I will not say the word no. I will give you an excuse or mm -hmm. like hesitate. And you know and I know that that hesitation means no. Right. In most cases, yes. Sometimes yes. no, but in most cases, yes. It's uh, it, The example you use is, hey, can you drive me to the airport? Right. And the example you give, the person pauses for a second and the person who made the request automatically knows that probably a no is coming. Yeah. So we prepare people. Right. Those hesitations prepare people for some kind of dispreferred response. Hmm. Um, so we're constantly managing these interpersonal relationships with everything we say and don't say. In many ways, unconsciously. Totally unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is, this is communication, right? It's not just about the language we produce. It's about how we move our hands, which I'm doing right now, um, mm -hmm. or how we move our eyebrows or where we breathe even. I mean, those things are so relevant to our ability to communicate with other people. Well, and as I'm ta as you're talking to me, I'm looking at you and I'm sort of nodding. Like yeah. I'm with you. Like I get it. Like keep going. Like it's, it's almost like uh, encouragement. Or yeah. enhancement, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's affiliation. Right. Yeah, I, you want me to know. You want to give me feedback. And so right. I'm sure you all have been in a situation where you're, like, getting no feedback from someone. And it's super weird. <laughs> and it's hard to, like, calibrate what you're saying because you're not getting any feedback. Well, and particularly in a hierarchical situation where it's one-to-many. And you look out on the audience and you tend to find your friendly faces. Right? Mm -hmm. Because I teach uh, – I, I do public speaking coaching a lot. And you have to find the friendly faces because a lot of people will just stare at you blankly and you go, what is happening? Like, am I getting through to you? Like, I don't know what to do. And if you focus on that too much, you tend to panic and you go, oh God, I, I don't know if I should keep going, but you power through anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Oh yeah. We like are so desperate for that and like affiliation. And <laughs> honestly, I think it's kind of beautiful. And I think people see that as this vulnerability, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's kind of magnificent that we do that. And it's, it's true for pretty much every language. I mean, we all have different ways of doing it, but. Well, and if you think about it, affiliation is important and affiliation. I've heard this put to me by one of my professors in college. Affiliation is compensatory to division. So for instance, you go to a college football game, right? And on one side you have the Colorado state Rams. On the other side, you have the CU buffs and you have the CSU side chanting. I'm proud to be a CSU Ram. That means, hey, we're all proud here. We're all affiliated. You're not. Mm -hmm. And so affiliation is compensatory to division. Mm -hmm. So you are creating your own sort of tribe. You're not us. Yeah. So. Yeah. And just to talk about or to bring in what you said before about this performative ability of creating audiences. So um, another thing that we sort of a popular theory in sociocultural linguistics right now is we don't have this stable identity. It's only created through our interactions with other people. Mm. And I, I believe that. I mean, to some extent, you know, to, to a large extent, I believe that. Um, so it's kind of like that. I mean, you talk your identity into being, and if you don't have the ability to talk, you sign it into being or however you communicate with other humans. But your identity doesn't exist until you are communicating. And until it's almost reflected back to you. It's mm -hmm. almost like affirmed by others because you're putting it out there and until you get feedback and it's either affirmed or denied until that feedback loop is complete, 
you don't know how it's being received. So your identity almost doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And there's, um, some research to support that. So one situation that's coming to mind right now is they did interviews with people in DC, some of the neighborhoods that are gentrifying. And they found that people, when they're talking about gentrification, have different conversational techniques. Hmm. So, um, African-American people will call on things that we generally consider African-American language or uh, black vernacular English Mm. when they're talking about this specific topic Mm. because they're sort of calling on that identity. They're making it relevant in that moment. But in other scenarios, they may um, sort of accommodate the person that they're talking to or, I mean, whatever. We all do it. Depending on who we're talking to, we make certain parts of our identity relevant. Interesting. Yeah. Can you give me an example of that, of that, of the type of language used in gentrification by African-Americans? Like black vernacular English? Yeah. Um, so they have, uh, so there is one particular, well, there's several things that they do. They have what they call, uh, I can't remember what it's called. They'll cut off the end of words. So like, um, I'm not going to approximate it. That's probably pretty inappropriate, but they'll cut off the ends of words and where we would normally release after we say something, they hold back from doing that. Hmm. Um, or they'll, um, do they'll switch certain sounds like there's ask versus ax and things like that. So some of these things that are sort of fundamental to black vernacular English. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, I'm thinking about language choices. You brought up gentrification and you think about people who are moving into a neighborhood that is traditionally demographically not reflective of who they are, they'll say, this neighborhood is up and coming, Yeah. right? And that that's a very sort of polite and masked way of saying this neighborhood is gentrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's a euphemism. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, fascinating stuff. How did you find your way to four degrees? So using this uh, skill set that you have and this field of study that you have dedicated yourself to, how did you end up applying this in political campaigns and campaigns of all stripes? Oh, well, it was like a circuitous journey for sure, but... Uh, I love circuitous journeys. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I spent a couple of years building trails in national parks, which was super cool. And then I sort of realized that I wanted to go back to school and, um, you know, language was always the most fascinating thing to me. Was this after your undergrad? Yes. Okay, where did you get your undergrad? Ohio State. Okay, is mm-hmm. that where you're from? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ish? Yeah, ish. Okay. Columbus, we'll say. So I always knew I wanted to go back to school. I thought it was going to be for linguistics. Just so happened that that was the case. I decided to come out here to Boulder and start this process. What led you to Boulder? It's Boulder. It's Colorado. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, like I said, I worked outdoors for a long time. So like that part oh, sure. is super attractive. Yeah. Having that right in your backyard. Yeah. I mean, Boulder's a beautiful place and the fl- and butts up right against the flat irons. Yeah. It's ideal. Yeah, I mean, I get that uh, 100%, although I'm a Fort Collins guy, I can sort of appreciate intellectually uh, the draw to Boulder. Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect. You know, it has its uh, (laughs) funny little things, but um, yeah, it was sort of a no-brainer to do that. So I started my program here, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the sociocultural realm, especially try to make it pertain to politics or activism in Mm. some way, because that was sort of another... Uh, passion of mine. Have you always been sort of politically active? Yeah. What does that go back to? Do you think like how far back did you start getting into that? Obama. Okay. Right. (laughs) How old were you when Obama was elected? If, and you don't have to say if you don't want to. No, no, that's okay. I was, I I was 18. Okay. I think was the first year that I was able to 
well, it was my first year I was able to vote, obviously. And he was running, so that was 2012. Yeah, I was, I was 18 or 19, one of the two. My first presidential election was George W. Bush versus Al Gore. Yeah. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, 2000. You know, so I get to vote in that election, and then we don't have resolution for that for months. Yeah. And I go, this isn't how it always goes, right? This is not how I <laughs> yeah, remember it from when sucks. I was a kid. <laughs> I'm like, this is, uh, this is really weird uh, because it was drawn out. We were watching it that night, and at one point, Tim Russert had his little like whiteboard, mm-hmm. and... At the end of the night, all he had was a big question mark on it. He goes, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and seeing Tim uh, Russert like that. resignation, yeah. He's like, nope, I've been on the air for, I don't know, three and a half days it feels like. Yeah. And I still have no idea. Oh my, and it ended up coming down to like 530 <clears throat> votes or something. Something right? like yeah. that, yeah. And I mean, if you really want to date yourself, you can start talking about uh, hanging chads. Oh, yeah. And things like that. And you go, wow, okay, that what a time capsule. Uh, yeah, so Obama really moved me. I, I saw, he came to Ohio State and I saw him speak and I was sort of becoming privy to the, the injustice of the world mm-hmm. at the time. I sort of grew up in a bubble. So going to school sort of opened my eyes to that. And, um, I studied literature. So like that was a huge part of it. And I realized like, wow, the world sucks for a lot of people and it's really unfair. So, um, we need to do something about it because mm. it could be different. Yeah. And Obama said it could be different. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I still love him, obviously. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean that, that comes through. I, and this is radio, not television. And so you, you have like a glow about you when you talk about <laughs> Obama, Yeah. um, which, uh, which is really fun to see. Um, so you were building trails. You went to Boulder, uh, after your time was, was up in Boulder with this diversion to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, what came next? Well, I, so I started working here part-time last August. Okay. And doing what? Doing like some copywriting, some content creation. Uh, so come May, I sort of looked around. I asked myself what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to stay in politics and I definitely want to find a space for linguistics and politics. Yeah, it just made a lot of sense to stay here. I like it and I like where I live and what I do and the people I work for. And so yeah, just came on full time in May. So how does your degree in linguistics play out in the copywriting that you do, the content creation, and how does that intersect with the other parts of campaigns? Well, I'm inclined to say in every single way you can possibly imagine because like we're communicators, that's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And as someone who comes from this background, I think that I bring a unique analysis to it for sure. In terms of something that's more concrete and specific, uh, you know, we're talking about doing some research into language that's effective and using data to big data to look at what is working in terms of language choices and syntax and things like that. So I think that's a huge frontier in politics and sort of in things in general. I mean, you look at things like Cambridge Analytica, which... Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What a nightmare. It is a total nightmare. It is. I totally agree. And that's sort of like the worst of Big Brother. But there, there is some kind of interesting opportunity there to think about how language affects people and using the resources we have in big data to, to look at that and hopefully not be so horrible <laughs> Not you do it. Yeah, and not, not be so divisive because the thing that, that bothers me, I recently had on this show Kathy Walker, who is the news director at KOA News Radio. Mm-hmm. And what we had talked about was in the past, she, she had the privilege of interviewing Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House during Reagan's time. And he said, Tip O'Neill needed Reagan, and Reagan needed Tip O'Neill. And those two, when they would go into negotiations, they would figure out ways in which to work together and 
not make each side feel like they're losing. And one of the things that is so tough right now to me is the trench warfare that seems to infect politics. It's not just that I want to win. It's that I want the other side to lose. And maybe I even want the other side to suffer. And so you use language to divide people where I think some of that is useful. I mean, there are times where we really need to call a spade a shovel. But on the other hand, I, I, I fear that we are losing what makes us, uh, what brings us together. Yeah, I totally agree. But as we were just talking about to bring a full circle, language has that capacity mm-hmm. and the way that we use it has that capacity and no one is going to win if we continue being this divided. Right. So the future of that, even so, you know, when you talk about using big data to figure out what language is effective, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be cynical. It can be maybe the future of that is affiliation mm. and how we can bring people together with a message that really resonates with the humanity in people. Yeah. Well, and the way you're talking about it is you could use this tool that you have, I think for evil or for good. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, there, there's got to be linguistics people out there who are just thoroughly mercenary with it. And have you come across any of those? I'm afraid to say. <laughs> you can well, so answer- Noam Chomsky is obviously the most famous linguist. Right. And he is very, very active in politics these days. I don't agree with him all of the time. Certainly. Uh, I don't agree with him a lot of the time. He's, uh, I mean, he's <laughs> certainly got some controversial opinions. Yeah. And if you read the People's History of the United States, I mean, you'll you'll find things in there that are both eye-opening, uh, thoroughly enraging, and things that you 100% and absolutely disagree with. Yeah. You mean Howard Zinn? Oh, no. You're right. That's Howard yeah. Zinn. Uh, Chomsky, manufacturing consent. Yeah. Is Sorry. Uh, no, no. It's okay. Yeah. Howard Zinn is People's History. Right. Chomsky does manufacturing consent. Yeah. Which, yeah, is, is a book rich in linguistics, I, I would say. Yeah. So, I, you know, I have opinions about, about that. But, um, you know, just like any powerful tool, it's true. You can use it for good or bad. And who makes those decisions? I mean, I don't know who's to say. But I just know that if everyone could have health care, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, in some circles, that might be a controversial idea. I think as humans, the idea of everyone having healthcare, I don't think that's controversial at all. Yeah. I think, I think where we get, where, where we lose the heart of the issue is in mistaking differences in approach for differences in goal. Because I would say some pe- everyone would agree that healthcare for all is important. How we get there, I think is where the argument, that's where the rubber meets the road. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think so. And there's a lot with that tribalism that you were talking about too. There's yeah. The, tr- the tribalism kills me. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, I don't, I remember Lewis Black saying, you know, I don't need a team that bad. If, if I wanted a team, I'd join a bowling league. Okay. <laughs> but this is only our lives. This is only our country at stake. Can we come together? Can we be grown ups and can we find solutions together? Yeah. That's where it is for me. So I spend a lot of my career trying to bridge divides. So you know, I work in some controversial industries. I work in oil and gas, and I spend a lot of time with people who fundamentally disagree with the practice on its face. Mm-hmm. And what I say to them is, look, if I'd heard only what you heard, I'd be scared too. And so I'm not immediately, they're not my enemy. Right. Like I go to the other side of the table. I think what the, the term that we're dancing around here is empathy. You know, how do we build empathy with each other? I think that's another way of saying affiliation. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Yeah, I think that's kind of an extrapolation, but I'm totally into just taking things and running with it. So, <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're sort of uh, 
we're being a little bit wonky here. We're being yeah, a little totally. bit philosophical. And so, you know, why not run with it? Yeah. But, you know, if we can build empathy in each other, if, if we can even have some level of affiliation with each other, then we're all better off for it. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I see the world through your eyes? How does that enhance my understanding? How can you see the world through my eyes? And if we can get to a place where we're at least agreed on a certain set of facts, then we can move forward a little bit easier. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I would take that even one step further and see how we could find a way to show people that their values are actually the same. Right. So people vote their values. Yep. No matter what happens and they're going to vote against facts or common sense or reasoning, whatever, right. to vote their values. I'm not going to make generalizations about the folks who voted for Trump, but he spoke to different values for them. Sure. But I mean, I would sort of venture to say that like, if you peel that stuff back, you realize that actually the values, we, we all share a b bunch of values, right? Like we right. want to make sure our family is safe and well off and we want to, we generally want other human beings to be like safe and happy and, uh. Yeah, how we get to those values, though, that's that's complicated. Uh, it is complicated, and the, the tricky thing with voting is you've got two candidates, and voting is always binary, right? I mean, you're, you're going to cast your vote for one candidate over all the others. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it comes down to a ranking of values yeah. is what you're talking about. So even if you, you look at candidate A and candidate B and you go, all right, well, candidate B I agree with on this, 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 and this. But candidate A, I agree with on this, and this is most important to me. Mm -hmm. This is the most important thing. So you almost have to disregard everything else that you agree with in terms of candidate B to vote for candidate A. And so the problem is you're not just voting for candidate A based on that one value. You're getting the whole slate of other values that you disagree with, Yeah. which I, I don't know how you fix that system necessarily um, because that's the way democracy works currently, but... Uh, I think you get a lot of either unintended or just corollary consequences as a result of that. Yeah, definitely. Have you heard, I'm sure you're familiar with the ranking system. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I, think I don't cool know a lot idea. about it. So tell me a little bit more about it. Well, my understanding of it's pretty limited to they, so, uh, so in Ireland, they have a ranking system. You pick your first choice, second, third, and then based on who gets the most vote, votes, um, and, and within the ranking system is declared the winner. They tried it in Maine. I'm embarrassed to say I don't actually know what the outcome of that was, but um, I think it's kind of a cool idea. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I mean, they do that in elections that I would argue don't really matter that much. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like uh, MVP of baseball, you know, like you get, you get five votes or 10 votes or however many it is. So, you know, you, you put your first choice, second, third, fourth, fifth. And then those votes are weighted. So your first place votes get, you know, a higher weight. Second place gets a, the second highest weight. But then you tally them all up. And at the end of that, you have the winner based on the total number of points. Is that sort of what you're describing? Yeah, I think that's, that how, that's how it works. Yeah. I mean, that, that's how they do MVPs in sports, which, uh, which is weird. But, you know, that's a concept that I think a lot of Americans could grab onto where mm -hmm. it's like, Hey, we do it for, for athletes. Why don't we do it for politicians? Yeah. Well, it's kind of the same thing at this <laughs> point. So, <laughs> um, but I mean, what you're talking about also is sort of a fundamental shift from the two party system as well. No, I, I mean, I don't know that the two party, well, yeah, I mean, that would have to, especially in general elections, that means that we would probably get more third party candidates. Yeah. You'd need a variety of 
of candidates and platforms because I mean, imagine you're voting for president and you've got, you know, you've got Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green, what Reform Party, if that's still a thing, mm-hmm. the American Constitution Party. I can't imagine wanting to rank most of those. Like I, I can't imagine wanting to 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 give any endorsement to some of those parties. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you almost need. Uh, a wider spectrum instead of the strict binary Republican Democrat. Right. So I don't know how you get there, but I think there's enough frustration to where it's not a totally out of this world idea. Yeah. You got to think big. (laughs) That's important. Yeah. So in terms of some of the, some of the campaigns that you've worked on, I'm not going to ask you to name them specifically, but what types of things are you doing? How are you applying this degree? I think the application of it right now is just kind of uh, secondary. So I think that it gives me communication skills, but also gives me skills in terms of like proofreading and things like that. Um, and as I said before, I, I think that it's easier for me to identify um, certain like rhetorical techniques and different syntactical choices. And I think that stuff stands out to me, mm. which just allows me to do a more complete analysis of the language that I'm looking at. But, you know, my job, I have to do a lot of other things as well. So there is that aspect of, like, analysis and creation. Um, but I'm also, like, doing a little sort of account managing and dealing directly with campaigns. Sure. So there is that aspect. And I love the how dynamic that is. Like, I love bringing my academic background into it, but also using these, um, using, like, interpersonal skills and different things to to talk with campaigns and like be a part of the exciting nature of politics yeah. campaigns rather. I, I mean, yeah. Candidates are <laughs> candidates. Campaigns are always changing. They're very dynamic yeah. and, and they're very fluid. Do you ever get frustrated when like on a professional level, when you see the work that others are doing and you go, how did you miss this? How did you write this this way? Because that happens to me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably, so one of the things about being a linguist is that we try not to be prescriptive, meaning we accept language as it is and how it's being used rather than apply what it should look like. Right. Obviously, like when you're working with writing and communications, like you have to be correct and use standard English. But I sort of love the way people figure out ways to use language, mm. especially if it's like not correct or standard. Right. Like watching them use those resources is like super cool. No, I really enjoy that too. It's uh, it's almost like what you hear about when people go to art school. You have to learn all the rules so that you know when and how to break them. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you can use that. So for instance, uh, you know, I'll write an op-ed and I will intentionally use a sentence fragment to make a point. I go, I realize this does not have a correct subject verb, you mm-hmm. know, predicate, but you make a stronger point when you know when and how to break the rules. I think my point to you is there's so many people in this space doing a lot of work and so much of it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's true. I mean, I look at other PR professionals and like the, the first thing that you learn is how to write a press release and writing a press release is like rote task. Number one, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you've got your inverted triangle and you also know when and how to break that format as well. But it's like you couldn't even follow this properly. You buried the lead. You know, you, <laughs> the thing you want people to know most is in the fourth paragraph. Yeah. Most people have stopped reading by that point. Um, so do you run across things like that where you go, man, you're just professionally, you're not even good at this. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, that must be an experience of everyone where you're just working with someone and 
you think like, yeah, it's not great or I need to teach someone something right. or something and like that. That can definitely be frustrating. You go, how did this go through as many layers of reviews? I'm sure this went through. Yeah. Like I saw a letter to the editor recently that was worked by, I don't know, probably five or six people. And I go, you had six of you in here and this is what you came up with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes like, you know, there's too many cooks in the kitchen and True. Like, you end up with this, this sort of collage of like <laughs> horrible things, but yeah, just like this misshapen ball of clay. Yeah. And it's like, look, I made you an ashtray and you go, that is not even close to an ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I do want to, just mentioned briefly about this like stylistic choices that you're talking about. So, you know, I don't have, ex I don't have a space to do this in my current position, but so there's a lot of linguistic work right now about how people use uh, syntax capitalization punctuation on the internet hmm. to reflect how they feel. Interesting. So um, people talk about like errors being made and things like that. But, you know, on the internet, like we want to, you know, I, I, like we're talking about conversation analysis, we're relying on other cues to understand how people are feeling or when we should speak and things like that. Mm -hmm. We do that online too. So like when we're typing, if we're using all lowercase letters, like it's trying to give this sort of mono monotone type, like uninvested yeah. appearance. <laughs> Otherwise you can get really um, correct and use capital letters and correct punctuation. And, and like, yeah. And that's like your professional voice, right? right. <laughs> yeah. And like even how many ha's we use and ha ha, I mean like all of that stuff has linguistic significance and it's the way that we sort of embody online what we would rely on yeah. in face-to-face -face conversation. No, that's a good point. I think emojis are underrated in terms of adding layers to text conversations. Oh yeah. Because text is very stark. Right. And there's no like sarcasm font. So if you, if you write something sarcastically and people read it and they go, wow, that's just mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, why, why are you, why are you attacking me? And, and it's like, no, if you, if you write what you write and then you put a winky face, people go, oh, okay. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Emojis are like super important. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and they feel so stupid. Like, you know, you're a grown adult sending a smiley face to someone, but you go, no, I like, I know why I'm doing that because mm -hmm. Getting back to your original point, I want them to feel a certain way. You know, I, I want them to f like have the response that I want them to have. And when it's ambiguous, when you don't include something like that, you risk uh, alienating them. You risk not having that affiliation. Right. Yeah. You're going to threaten their face. No <laughs> one wants that. Yeah. So getting back to your TED talk real quick, because I want to bridge into this, how we say no matters. I was in Wichita with my wife and we were at this wedding. And so we were at the rehearsal dinner. She was in no condition to go out after that. <clears throat> and so her cousin called me and said, Hey, we're all going to this bar. Do you, uh, do you want to meet us out there? And I go, no. And <laughs> I'm like, my wife's in no condition to be in public right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind me telling this story, <laughs> but, uh, I'm like, you guys are welcome to hang out here. Like we're probably in for the night. We got drinks. We have food in our room. You guys can all hang out here. Mm -hmm. But it was the starkness of my no that really struck her and took her aback. And my, I got off the phone and my wife goes, I can't believe you just said no to her. He's like, our family does wow. not say no to each other. Wow. Like we will, you know, sort of dance around and we'll obfuscate and we'll, you know, it's like, oh, well, we'll see, maybe. And it's, it's sort of a non-response response. response mm -hmm. But that's not how I was raised. Like it's just sort of, no, like we're, we're not going anywhere. So right. like, let's not dance around this. 
And so to me, the title of your TED talk and then what you bridged into talking about the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting because I, here's another example. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you right now, but the, the number one fear, I, I read this, I can't remember which comedian said this, but the number one fear of men when they're interacting with women is that women are going to embarrass them. The number one fear of women when interacting with men is that men are going to fucking kill them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in terms of saying no, when it comes to, you know, issues of sexual Congress, the man doesn't want to lose face. And I think a woman knows this, but a woman is afraid of perhaps physical violence yeah. or retaliation. So you concluded your talk by talking about that. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. So the first thing that I want to say is I love the anecdote. It's so wonderful. And Yes, you said no in that situation, but you also provided an excuse. Right. Like you cannot just say no. You have to say yeah, just why. Just not a flat no. Yeah. I mean, it happens, but it, it happens because we're trying to have a certain effect on someone. Right. Right. It's it could be an comedic. assertion of status or, yes. yeah, or comedic maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. But the second thing is you also say that like, we don't do this in our family. We obfuscate, we dance around things. But my argument is actually that those words don't apply here because these are truly resources that we use. We don't have to say no all the time when we mean no, because we have these things and everyone understands barring, you know, people with certain disabilities and things like that. They understand what this means. So it counts as no, that's yeah, that's sort of the point discussing this, uh, during my masters, it, it just totally lent itself to the me too movement. And so particularly the Aziz Ansari situation. I don't right. know if you remember that. Yeah. So this is sort of actually that, that inspired, uh, this Ted talk. So sorry, Aziz, who I, re- I really like uh, as, as do I, and, yeah. you know, reading that you, that, that situation in particular there, there was, and I, you know, I don't want to excuse it in, in any way, but there was some ambiguity there where you go, right. You go, I, I don't know necessarily what to make of this. Well, the thing is, I don't, I don't agree that I think it's ambiguous and I think that's kind of no, my point. No, you're right. But I do think that we live in a culture where you men especially are taught to exploit that. Right. Right. And I, I don't hold it. And the thing is like, I can continue to love Parks and Rec and love Aziz Ansari because I don't think it's exceptional to him. I think that's a part of the culture that we're trying to change. Right. So to me, like reading the article about this woman's experience, I think, okay, I've definitely been in that situation. I know my friends have been in that situation. This woman is clearly saying no, but she is in a hierarchical situation that makes it very difficult. Right. Where there, there are a lot of reasons for that, that she can't just leave that she can't just. And so in, in a lot of ways she's trapped. Yeah. So when I, when I say, uh, ambiguous, I, I don't mean that as a way to excuse sort of the behavior. Mm-hmm. I use that word because I think he perceived it as ambiguous. I think he perceived it as having the door open. Yeah. So, yeah. So a part of my message is I agree with you and I think that that's true. And I don't think it's um, particularly malicious, but I do think that we need to encourage people to use it, the skills that they have and they rely on in their day-to-day lives in this scenario as well. Right. Because I am quite certain that Aziz Ansari goes through his life and doesn't have to clarify every hesitation or every excuse instead of a, a straight up no. I'm certain people just right. don't do that. We, we've grown obsessed with this like no means no idea. And like that is like this magic word. But in the reality is like 
it's not that simple in our lives. So why is it so complicated for this scenario? Right. So turning it on its head, you started talking about affirmative consent. Yeah. Where it's not, I mean, it's not that no means no. It means that yes means yes. Like get a very clear affirmation Mm -hmm. that, that this should proceed. Right. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we want to give people the preferred response. We set up our questions to get the preferred response from the person we're talking to. And if we can give that to them, it's very easy. So affirmative consent, it it absolutely makes the most sense because if you ask someone to have sex with you and they enthusiastically and quickly say yes, that is a hundred percent a yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's no question. You eliminate a lot of, I mean, you eliminate all ambiguity that way. Would you like to have sex with me? Yes. All right. Well, then we're off to the races now. Yeah. And as long as their body language supports that and you know other things are happening that make you feel comfortable. But not only that, it is affiliative, right? Like it, it promotes affiliation when you're able to give someone the preferred response and you're both on the same page and that's really happy and awesome. And yeah, it's fascinating stuff. What, what are the avenues for what you do going forward? Like what are ways in which you would like to apply this? that maybe you haven't before, or maybe the culture at large hasn't, how, how can you bring this, uh, more recognition, more, more understanding of how linguistics influence our lives? Even in this for the consent part, any, any way you want to take that, whether it's consent, whether it's in campaigns, any way you want to take that question, every scenario (laughs) I do. I think linguistics is like the most important thing. I think language is I mean, it, it is everything, right? It's, right? it's everything. So there's so many situations where it can become relevant. So in terms of consent, there are California has yes means yes. The country of Sweden has yes means yes. I want to see our country move in that direction, especially Colorado, which we've historically had a problem with. So anyone who has any kind of sway in Colorado that may hear mm-hmm. this, like this needs a, this is a conversation that needs to happen. Some universities have it, but that needs to be the next step. And like the Me Too movement has the ability to, to make that happen, I think. Yeah. Um, and in terms of campaigns and politics, there's so much opportunity with big data to like mix all of those things together and use it for good, which I understand is a very loaded thing to say, but there are ways to do that where there's a lot of input that everyone feels comfortable. Uh, regardless, I think that there's always opportunities for linguistic analysis. So, um, it's present in our lives everywhere. So there's that new movie that it just came out where the guy talks white. I'm using air quotes Mm -hmm. to get business. Uh, what is the name of that movie? Uh, is it sorry to bother you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it either, but I have two kids. They're three and a half and two. I don't really see movies currently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, but I mean like that relies on, uh, linguistic relativism, linguistic discrimination, things like that. And there's so much opportunity for that. So it's everywhere. Well, I'll tell you what, Liz, uh, I think you're doing remarkable work and this was an absolute pleasure. This is the time on the show when we do plugs. So if you want to plug four degrees, uh, I'm going to do that at the front end of this episode. (laughs) But, um, if you want to do it again, uh, if people can find you, Twitter, Facebook, if you have your own website, anything you want to plug, go ahead and do it now. Sure. So, um, you can find me at Liz underscore Marasco, M-A-R-A-S-C-O on Twitter and Liz, the linguist.com is my website. So please check it out. I'd love to hear from you and hear your ideas and your thoughts, your ramblings, just uh, no hate mail, hate mail, please. <laughs> trolls, and, trolls, not welcome. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, whatever, bring it on. And obviously I'll plug four degrees. So we 
focus a lot on campaigns, but we also do a lot of digital marketing for our private businesses. So if you have questions about digital marketing, anything like that, please, please reach out to me. Fantastic, Liz. Well, again, this was an enormous pleasure. I'm glad Zach hooked us up and I wish you continued success. Thanks, John. That wraps up episode 185 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you, Liz Morasco, for taking some time out of your day, especially during campaign season, to chat with me about what you do, how you do it, and what makes you successful. I wish you all the continued success in the world. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. If you have content you need created, I'll bet you we can do it for you. If you want to think about starting a podcast, I know I can help you do that. Our sponsor, as I said, is 4 Degrees. Check them out on the web at number 4, D-E-G-R-E-S. We're on the social media. J-O-A-T-Pod is the handle for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Check out my Worst Coworker Ever series on Instagram. I think you'll get a laugh out of it. Facebook is the only place for exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays at the homepage, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. If you happen to be on either one of those platforms and you haven't given us a rating or a review, take a few minutes and do that for us. That helps us gain visibility across all your platforms. I would deeply, deeply appreciate it. The John of All Trades podcast is a proud member of the Denver Podcast Network. Hear that tag at the beginning and end of each episode. And I will be back with a brand new episode very soon. So stay tuned to all those channels to stay up with all things John of All Trades. And until I hear you back here again, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny. The John of All Trades podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak.